Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Oh, Father, we come before you tonight and we declare that you are Lord. Not just in this place, but in us, in our hearts, in our lives. We know that we are here for one reason, because of you, your goodness, the love that you have for us that drove you to the cross, that drove you to take our place, our sin upon your shoulders, that we might have the chance of relationship and life eternal. That's why we're here, because of who you are, what it is that you've done for us, the love that you have for us. So we come before you, come before your word, and we just pray, Jesus, help us to know you more. Help us to know your plans more. Help us to understand how it is that you want to use us to make a difference in this world, to be a blessing to our community, our city. This we pray for in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. And welcome to week three of our series, Glory. We're going to be working out of John chapter 17 tonight, so you can go ahead and open up in your Bibles there now. Tonight we're going to be talking, uh, looking at Jesus' part three of his prayer, with the focus being unity. It's ironic when you think about it, because as young adults, we just spend an entire weekend talking about koinonia and what it means for us to be family, to be one people. It's almost like Jesus is trying to drill this into us. Here we are again, talking about unity, community, what it means to be family. You know, the word that Jesus uses for unity in this passage is actually oneness. He prays that we would be one. When you look at the church today, oneness isn't exactly something that we exude. And I'll give you just one example. Do you know that there are over 35,000 denominations around our world today? 35,000. And that's just kind of staggering. Particularly when you think about the reality that for over a thousand years, there weren't any denominations at all. Well, that didn't happen until about the 11th century when the church split. And then we had the Orthodox Church in the East and the Catholic Church in the West. That didn't happen until the 11th century. And even then, that was it for another 500 years until the Reformation happened in the 16th century. And don't get me wrong, we needed the Reformation, okay? It was a good thing. We had lost our way. But one of the downsides of the Reformation is that it normalized division. It normalized it. And so we have today 35,000 denominations. We were known for, for, for what differentiates us instead of what actually unites us. And it just kind of snowballed that division. For a thousand years, there was one church. Then for another 500 years, there were only two denominations, which means in the last 500 years, we've gone from two denominations to 35,000. And that's just staggering. It means that on average, every single year, there are 70 new denominations. And I would say that a good percentage of those are the result of disagreements. Uh, so we don't agree with your theology. Well, we want a different flavor, a different focus. So we're checking out and we're starting something new. 
Now, I think the words, the Lord, is at work in that space. But you've got to understand, for our community, that is just confusing. I don't know what to do with denominations. They just kind of group us all in, in one big thing, right? In fact, we get lumped in with the JWs and the Mormons and anybody who has church in their name because they just don't understand what the deal is with all of these different things. It muddies the waters. See, we get to the final part of Jesus' prayer and he prays for oneness because there's something about that oneness, that unity that fuels our witness. That together we shine all the brighter. That's what we're looking at tonight. Before we go any further, Rachel is going to read our passage tonight. There she is. Bless you, sister. Go for it. A reading from John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Thank you very much. So we pick up in verse 20. Jesus has just finished praying for himself that God would glorify him and then in turn be glorified. He's prayed for his disciples that God would protect them and keep them and sanctify them as he sends them out. But then we get to verse 20 and Jesus turns his attention to those who one day will believe. In other words, he's praying for the church, for us. And that's incredible. 2,000 years ago, Jesus knew you, loved you, and so prayed for you. That's the boundless nature of our God's love. It's not restricted to a certain group of people or to his own disciples. He loves the world. And so here he is praying for you and for me. And I love the authority that he prays with. He doesn't pray for those who one day might believe. I mean, we kind of really hope that he does. No, he prays for those who will believe. There's a sense of authority about that. It's a statement of fact that builds our faith. When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Paul says the gospel is the power of salvation to anyone who believes. And John says that the Holy Spirit is at work convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You put all of that together and you'll know why Jesus prays with absolute certainty for those who will believe. Our God is at work. He has been for 2,000 years. 
And so here is Jesus praying for the fruit of that work for us. Fruit of the gospel. Us here tonight. And he prays for unity. And prays that we would be one. Just as the Father is in him and he is in the Father. And that might seem like a really odd thing for Jesus to pray. Father in him and him in the Father. But there's actually something in this that shapes our understanding of unity. See, this is something that we can bring about. This is something that only God can do. Oneness. This is what my commentator said. He said, this love and unity isn't a moral effort powered by human energy is an outgrow, an overflow of the union Christians enjoy with Jesus himself. A union modeled on the oneness of the Father and the Son. A union born when the Father and the Son indwell the believers, indwell us when we are given new birth. That's significant because Jesus is saying it's not about trying harder. It's not about disciplining yourself or mustering up some kind of inner strength that we would love one another. This is about intimacy with him. Our relationship with him because in him is where oneness is found. I mean, the Trinity stands as an everlasting testament to oneness. Our God is three and yet one. And there's no struggle going on within that. There's no tension. They exist in perfect unity. And because of what Jesus has done, we get to participate in that unity. Which means the key to oneness is actually our pursuit of Jesus. And even in my own marriage, I've seen that in my own life. I know that I'm a better husband when I walk in step with Jesus. Brings unity, it brings love, self-sacrifice. I'm a better father when I walk in submission to Jesus. My marriage is strongest when we both pursue Jesus. Because when He's at the center, He binds us together. He makes us one. In a way that I would never be able to do in my own strength. And it's the same at a corporate level. For this community, for the church, and for the wider church. And we find our oneness in Him. The Holy Spirit leads us out of selfishness and unforgiveness and division and into love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. He brings us together. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus is our peace. And just bring peace. He is our peace. Because on the cross, he destroyed the barriers. And he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And made us one. What Jesus does. You want Unity. You want oneness and pursue Jesus together. That's why things like like pastors praying together, churches gathering together, praying together, it's why it's so powerful. Worshiping together, serving together, that's why it's powerful. It's because when we pursue Jesus together, that he actually does what we cannot do and he makes us one. 
Here's the part that I don't want you to miss. It changes everything. And Jesus says that that oneness empowers us to shine as a light into the darkness because it sets us apart from the world around us and it validates the gospel. It opens people's eyes to the reality of God's kingdom and it points them to Jesus. That's the power of unity. And that's why Jesus prays, may they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the gospel. You see, unity is so much more than just a community issue. It's not just about us. This is a missional issue. 1 John chapter 3 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You could have said anything in there. If you have this incredible understanding of the gospel, this incredible presentation of the gospel, we have an amazing worship, we have this incredible building. That's not, it doesn't say any of that. It says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus is in the business of saving people. That's why he entrusts us with his glory. That's why he prays that we would be brought to complete unity. Because in that oneness, Jesus shines through. And in him, the world gets a glimpse of the depth of love that God has for it. You've got to understand, disunity cripples our witness. And by the same token, oneness astonishes the world. Because not of the world, it's found in him alone. You know, there was a a famous theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody know Dietrich Bonhoeffer? A couple of people, wonderful guy. He was a German pastor and theologian who stood up to Hitler in the midst of World War II. That's kind of enough on your resume right there, right? But that's, that's not all, right? In fact, he was so disillusioned with the German church that he started a resistance movie, movement sorry, called the Confessing Church. I don't know what a church looks like if it's a resistance movement. But that'd be kind of cool. I want to be a part of that, right? This is what the whole base of it. He was insisting that Christ, not Hitler, was the head of the church. I think we'd all agree with him on that one. Uh, listen, I've never seen Hitler in my Bible. I just don't think that's accurate, all right? That was their claim. Jesus is the head of the church. We're all there with him on that one, right? But you can imagine that Hitler didn't exactly like that. Didn't like the lack of control, so they came under all sorts of pressure. The official German church, the state-funded stamp church, exactly Hitler's controlled church, right? Made it illegal to even speak the name of anyone who attended the confessing church made it illegal to tithe to any other church and eventually shut down their meetings. That didn't stop Bonhoeffer. He decided to go underground. What you do, you go underground. This time he didn't start a church. He started a seminary, a Bible college, right? And it was hardcore. See, Bonhoeffer believed that the darkness was so bleak that the light had to shine all the brighter. He was incredibly disciplined. Incredibly disciplined and expected that from his students. He had incredibly high expectations. This wasn't an ordinary Bible college. This was hardcore. One day a friend of his was chatting to him and he asked him why. Why are you so demanding? Why are you so hardcore? Why don't you just lighten up a bit? 
Hitler, Bonhoeffer takes him to the top of this hill overlooking a Nazi training camp. He points in the direction of his underground seminary and says, this must be greater than that. This must be greater than that. See, Hitler was building a kingdom of hardness and cruelty, and the only way to overcome that was for the church to have something greater. And even though we find ourselves in a different time, in completely different circumstances, make no mistake, we are in a spiritual battle. And I believe that Jesus is saying, this, this must be greater than that. Otherwise, what hope do we have to share? This must be greater than that. If we want to shine as a light into the darkness, then we have to be set apart. We live in a world of constant conflict where almost everything is a source of division. Money, race, gender, you name it, this world uses it to divide. But Jesus prays for something more. That we would be something more. That our community would be radical And that it would shine in the midst of the darkness that's all around us. Because in him, this is greater than that. Let's pick it up in verse 24. This is how Jesus finishes his prayer. Gives us an indication into the heart of God. Anytime you see God speaking to God, significant. So he says, Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. Verse 24 gives us this incredible insight to the heart of God. Because his prayer shows us that his greatest desire is to redeem us and draw us close. That we might know and experience the fullness of his glory. And you've got to understand how amazing that is. The glory of God is his perfection, his righteousness, his love and mercy and justice and holiness on display for all the world to see. That's the glory of God, made manifest for us. Jesus prays for the Father to draw us to himself, that we would know and experience that in all its fullness. There's life there. There's joy there. There's peace there. It's greater than we could possibly even imagine. And the most precious part of heaven won't be the streets paved with gold. It won't be the people that we're reunited with. It won't be the new bodies that we receive. The most precious part of heaven is Jesus. All of his glory. So get this, Revelation 21 says that the eternal city has no need for sun or moon for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. Now, I don't know how the goodness of God translates into light, but here's what I do know. There's not a single person in this room that's going to get to heaven and think, oh, I was expecting more. There's not a single person in this room. We will stand in awe of the glory of God. 
I can't believe it when people say, you know, when I get to heaven, I got some questions for the man upstairs. I'm going to need some answers. Stop it. Stop. You won't be asking anything. As if God owes you an explanation. You won't be asking a thing. You'll be standing there in awe of Jesus. Speechless. In front of Jesus in all his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. See, in one sense, we've seen the glory of God because Jesus revealed it to us. But you've got to understand the glory of God is veiled. Now we see like through a mirror dimly, but one day, because what if Jesus has done, we will see face to face. And I guarantee you it will be greater than anything you could possibly even imagine. That's what awaits us. That's what Jesus longs to lead us into. And it's just another reminder of the goodness of our God. And here is Jesus, our Savior and King, praying to the Father, interceding on our behalf. And he prays that we would be with him and so know him in all his glory. That's not some cold, distant being. That's someone who's for you. That's someone who loves you more than you could possibly even imagine. And the world doesn't know. But Jesus says the world doesn't know. The world is blind to the goodness of our God. They just can't see it. They can't hear his invitation. But that's why Jesus came. To change that. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the radiance, the reflection of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. See, God has been progressively revealing more and more of himself throughout the course of history. So if you look back at Abraham, you'll see that he knew almost nothing about God. He knew that God was real, that he had a plan, he knew that God speaks, and he knew one of God's name. That's it. You get to Moses, and we see God reveal more of his character and his nature through the Ten Commandments. And then we, we see him reveal even more through the prophets. But all of that culminates in the person and work of Jesus. Where we see the perfect representation, the perfect revelation of who God is. So you want to know what the Father is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what the Holy Spirit is like? Look at Jesus. He made the Father known. He continues to make the Father known that we would understand the depth of love that God has for each and every one of us. That's his motivation. Right there at the end, that's his motivation. And I know when you miss that, Jesus prays that the love that God has for him would be in us. That's life changing. The love that God has for him would be in us. You want to be free from the never ending pursuit of worth and value? Grab hold of that. Find your identity in that. That our God loves us with the same love that he has for his one and only son. Life changing. 
That's scandalous. And the world needs to know. That's why Jesus came. But you've got to understand. We play a part in that. Not deserve to. Seems almost foolish to allow us to play a part. But by the grace and the mercy of God, he allows us to participate in that. We play a part. Making Jesus known. Here's what I believe that God is saying to us tonight. Here's my gospel truth for you. I read this passage and I read this. And in Jesus we find oneness. But in oneness the world sees Jesus. That's what I want you to grab hold of tonight. That's what I'm praying. God impresses on your heart that in him, in Jesus, him alone, we find oneness. But in that oneness, in a unity that goes beyond the four walls of this church and even beyond denominational lines, in that kind of oneness, the world gets a glimpse of Jesus. And next week in this very building is Movement Day. It's going to be a significant day, not just for us, but for our city. Pastors and leaders from all across our state are coming together to pray together. To share what God is doing, to plant the seeds of partnership, that together we would make a difference for our city. There's an awesome book called A Disruptive Gospel. I only got one copy, Nick has a bunch more, right? It tells the story of how Movement Day started. It began in New York City with guys like Tim Keller, Mac Pyre, Jim Simbala. Love me some Jim Simbala. But really, it began out of desperation. And New York is one of the most secular cities in the world. In a country where nearly 40% of the population still attend church every week, New York has an attendance rate of only 2%. At least it did before Movement Day started. It's not just church attendance. Crime rates were through the roof. It was an incredibly dangerous place to live. In 1994, eight people were dying, were being murdered every single day. Racial tensions, drugs were out of control. It was just a dark place to live. Pastored from all kinds of different churches, every denomination gathered together to start to pray. They didn't know what else to do. What else can we do? It's so bleak, it's so dark. All we can do is pray. Called Pastors Prayer Summits, PPS. Not a great name, that's fine. And actually, still going today. And here's the thing out of that prayer, unity was created and God launched a gospel movement that has gone worldwide the needs of New York were way too big for any one church to meet but together when the walls came down it wasn't about me or my church when God brought them to that place of oneness in him and for their city amazing stuff happened this is what Mac Pye writes in this book Disruptive Gospel Says after spending 30 years in New York City, I've seen what I've seen God do immeasurably more through the church than what we could have even imagined. This is one of the great stories of ch- in church history when you consider that Christianity grew 500 percent from 1989 to 2014 in Manhattan. The murder rate dropped 86 percent in 20 years, and we have the most united, diverse church, one of the most united, diverse churches in all history. I believe the basis for much of this has been the Spirit of God bringing His people together in our admitted state of helplessness in united prayer. 
We have entered into the divine mystery with God on behalf of the city we love. I don't know about you, but I want to see God do something like that in our city. 20 years from now, I want to be able to say, you know what? We gathered together. We got over ourselves. We started praying with each other. And God allowed God to bring us together to make us one. He gave us a heart for our city. And we saw an increase in Christianity 500%. Thousands, tens of thousands of people come to find life in the name of Jesus. I want to see that. I want to see lives transformed. I want to see our city transformed. So I'm praying that Jesus, that his prayer would be answered here in this church, in our city, that in him we'd find oneness. And in that oneness, that our city would see Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we started by acknowledging you, your greatness, love that you have for us, the sacrifice that you made, we finish Jesus by acknowledging you. That you changed everything on the cross. You brought life to people who didn't deserve it. You changed it. Changed the course of history. And Jesus, in you, something special happens. And so I just pray, Father, for us, it starts with us, it starts with me, my heart. I pray, Jesus, give us a passion for that oneness. Bring us to that place of absolute unity in you. Put a daily passion on us for us to pursue you, to love you. And in you, we would be brought together. Father, do it in such a radical way that this church stands as a light into the darkness. This would be a place of hope. A place where the lost and the tired and the destitute come to find life in the name of Jesus. And not just here in our church, but in every church. Not about us. Father, we just want to be a part of it. And so we pray, Jesus, give us a passion for our city. Bring us to that place of oneness. That we would see you do incredible things. This we pray for in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.